The Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan, an itinerant mender of pots and pans, wrote The Pilgrim's Progress in the 1660s and 1670s. As many of you will know, he was in jail in Bedford for preaching without a license, a necessary thing in the early Restoration period. And that's, of course, where the story he tells begins with a dream. And in that dream, Christian makes a journey towards the celestial city. In fact, the actual journey is from Bedford to London. And, of course, to some extent, it would have been a celestial or at least a gleaming city after Christopher Wren had begun to complete the work that the Fire of London had started. On his journey in this great book, Christian travels through the Slough of Despond, Vanity Fair, and, of course, the Delectable Mountains, amongst other places, and meets their faint-hearted neighbours like Pliable, Obstinate, Mistrust, and Timorous, three shining ones in the House Beautiful, lays the, out the giant Apollyon, and also travels just about with Mr. and Madam Byens. Well, since it was first published in 1678 and 1684 in two parts, Bunyan's book, I suppose, has worked its way to the very heart of both English literature and indeed the English language, standing now alongside, in our estimation, the works of Shakespeare and I think above all, the King James version of the Bible. It's clear that The Pilgrim's Progress was a text that mattered very much to Rafe Form Williams. As far as we can judge, he first encountered it as a child in the 1870s, perhaps in his father's library in Downampney, where his father was the vicar. And he first set part of Pilgrim's Progress in 1906 for a dramatization that was performed at Reigate Priory. Now, some of the music he wrote then creeps into the fantasia on a theme of Thomas Tallis in 1910. And it does seem that that piece of music is now in Vaughan Williams's mind associated with Pilgrim's Progress. In 1921, Vaughan Williams composed one whole episode from Bunyan's work, The Shepherds of the Delectable Mountain. And it's clear by now that he's begun to think about writing an opera based upon the whole work. This did not go inevitably as smoothly, perhaps, this is after all is an English opera, as everybody might have hoped. The next key event, I think, is in 1942, in the middle of the Second World War, when the BBC commissioned Vaughan Williams to write the incidental music for a radio production of Pilgrim's Progress, which had John Gilgud as Christian. Indeed, Vaughan Williams continued, I think, to regard the opera possibly as something of a lost cause because he borrows extensively from the music he'd written for The Pilgrim's Progress when he's writing his fifth symphony the year after that radio production in 1943. By 1948, as far as we can judge, the opera is completed or it's in a complete form, though completed it won't really be until some years later. And there it lies for, for another three years until 1951, when it's given its first performance at the Royal Opera House on the 26th of April as part of the Festival of Britain. Formulims had written his own libretto for the work with some help from his wife Ursula, uh, particularly in the Vanity Fair sequence. He had adapted and edited Bunyan's narrative, dropping some episodes from the original work. never easy to change pages with a microphone in your hand. Um, but in some ways, I think the principal change was to rename Christian as Pilgrim. Uh, 
Of course, that was in part to make the journey one of wider appeal. And we should perhaps also remember that although Vaughan Williams was indeed a son of the rectory or the parsonage, he was scarcely, one could say, a conventional Christian. He was determined that the piece should not be performed in a church or a cathedral. It was going to be performed in an opera house. But he called this finished work a morality, not an opera. It was, he said, more of a ceremony than a drama. And in that sense, he deliberately, I think, evokes the ideas and the style of Richard Wagner's last opera, Parsifal. Well, so much for an introduction. We have a trio of guests this evening. We have the baritone Adam Green, who's covering Pilgrim and Bunyan, and Richard Pearson, a member of the music staff here at Eno, and they're going to perform uh, music from this morality. And we're also, very fortunately, in conversation with Martin Brabins, who is conducting this performance this evening. He is, of course, chief conductor of the Nagoya Philharmonic from next year, principal guest conductor of the Royal Flemish Philharmonic, a champion of English music, a champion of 20th century, and indeed, contemporary music. Will you please welcome Martin Brabins. Martin, I can think of one performance of Pilgrim's Progress at Sadler's Wells recently, and that's the only one I can think of. We've clearly neglected this work. Why? Good evening, everybody. Yes, we have, but I think we're making amends here uh, at ENO. Why has it been neglected? It's, uh, there's so many questions about this piece, aren't there? I think it got off to a pretty rocky start in 51, so, so rumour has it. Richard, who's going to play to you a little later, who's been repetiteur on this uh, production with me, he's wonderful, Richard Pearson, um, met, when he was a student, Leonard Hancock, who conducted that first performance as a young man uh, on the music staff at Covent Garden. And Richard, is a great, uh, great lover of English music, thought, oh, I'll ask Mr. Hancock about Pilgrim. Uh, and he said, you know, you, oh, you conducted the first performance. And there was a kind of embarrassed pause, and yes, I did, yes. <laughs> that was, so it sort of tells a lot about that experience not perhaps being the happiest one. Do you think, in a way, I mean, leaving aside the production, which clearly Vaughan Williams himself wasn't very happy no. with, he much preferred a later production, um, do you think the problem was that the work didn't sit easily into any obvious style or form that you expect to find in an opera house? I think that's exactly the case. But uh, ENO have got a strong tradition of doing unusual uh, works and presenting oratorios on stage and, and so on. So I think it, it fits somewhere... And it works beautifully as a, as a piece of theatre, as you'll, I presume you're all coming to the show tonight, as you'll all experience later. And I don't think, it, you know, when you go to hear a, 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 you know, a piece in the theatre or in the concert hall, you've got to go with an open mind. And you've got to have an open ears and, and eyes and experience the work without necessarily referring back to other traditions or what an opera is about, you know, you were in the opera house, but we're not really experiencing an opera. As Vaughan Williams himself said, you know, it's not really an opera. He was pretty clear that people didn't really like it and was perfectly happy with that. He said, this is the opera I wanted to write. But at the same time, he didn't want it performed in a church or a cathedral. He was no. determined to remove it from, as it were, uh, an ecclesiastical setting. I think... 
it can work beautifully also in that sort of setting. I, you can see, and you'll hear, it's it's got a solemnity about it that uh, works very, very would work very well in a in an ecclesiastical setting. But as he, he was absolutely adamant that it should be performed in the theatre, and we should respect his wishes. Does the word morality, the word that Vaughan Williams himself gave to the piece, suggest that we're seeing, in a sense, a piece that has its roots in that morality theatre tradition? Perhaps Every Man is the one morality play we all know now, but there were others too. In other words, it's there to show us things, to teach us things. I assume that's what he, what he meant. I mean... I wonder when, I was just thinking when you mentioned earlier that he called it a morality, I wonder when he decided to call it a morality, whether, whether it was before it was staged or after, or was it, was it a reaction to, you know, the, the reaction to the piece? I'm not sure. But we all know a little bit about Pil Pilgrim's Progress. I'm sure it's something most people have got a, a faint uh, knowledge of. And it, it does... Tell it, it's a story for for every man, for all of us here. You know, we're all going on some kind of journey, and uh, we all get sidetracked or influenced or thrown off course. I do all the time. I mean, you're all looking as though that doesn't happen to you, but I <laughs> tell you, it certainly happens to me all the time. But so I think you, it's it's a piece, a very. One-off. It's one-off. It really is. I mean, you came on, on to the first night, and it really is something quite on its own. I, I, I mean, uh, being sidetracked, I mean, I'm, I'm always amazed that everyone thinks they're going to get to the Celestial City, but we'll <laughs> leave, leave that to one side. <laughs> this is obviously a work. Just looking at the biography of Vaughan Williams, you know, he first encounters it as a boy in 1870, first starts writing music in 1906. This is clearly a work that profoundly mm. influenced him, mm. or belonged to him. And, is this simply because he's his father's son, or are there other reasons? Well, if only he were here to ask. You know, he was notoriously uh, reticent about influences, and the Sixth Symphony, for instance, which was written just around the time of the Second War, and everyone said it was foreshadowing nuclear catastrophe and so on. He said, no, it's just music. It's just music, really. It is just music. So, you know, he, he was very hard to pin down on those kind of issues. And I imagine down Ampney, I, I drive past it every time I come to London, living down in Gloucestershire. I always have a lovely feeling as I drive past the signs to down Ampney, just outside Swindon. Uh, <laughs> have, you, have you looked closely at that sign? What it says is, down Anthony, then there's a pause, welcomes careful motorists. Yes, of course. <laughs> I don't think VW would have necessarily no. liked the second bit. Um, but growing up, as you, say, as you mentioned, as a vicar's son, I mean, it must have profoundly influenced him, even though at, as a young man he said he was an atheist, later an agnostic. It must, must have influenced him. It must be something to do with the influence of his, of his childhood, that this piece, the, the book, was so profoundly important to him. And uh, as did many soldiers in the First World War, he had a cop copy of the book with him. Uh, he was a stretcher bearer, I think, as a, a medic uh, in the First War. And he had the Pilgrim's Progress there with him. So clearly it, it meant a great deal to him. And there's, there's a lot to read in it. I mean, there's, it's a big, thick, very dense text and there's a lot to be taken from it whatever your beliefs I think 
What it also has in its original form is that thing that perhaps particularly appealed to Vaughan Williams, a sense of the everyday, how we actually do things in a material world, but with the sense that beyond that material, nudging that material world, there is another world, a visionary world, a world of other things. And that, perhaps, also is at the heart of so much of Vaughan Williams' music anyway. Yes, I mean, perhaps for him... I, mean, I was in discussion with Tom Schenk, who's the designer tonight, who's, who's Dutch, so he knew very little about Vaughan Williams or about the history and tradition of uh, English music. But he kind of was came up with quite a nice idea that for Vaughan Williams, perhaps music itself replaced uh, the need for religion in his life. And there's, there's a spiritual dimension to music. I mean, we all get... We ho I hope you'll all be moved by what you hear tonight. It's going to t it, this music really is very, very touching. It makes me weep while I'm conducting it, and I've been working on it for the last six weeks. So I think you'll find that this is a very, very moving experience, and there's something remarkably fulfilling and refreshing about it. And maybe that's what Vaughan Williams, uh, his religion, his music became his religion. I d maybe, who knows? Martin, we're going to talk a little bit more about music in a moment. Um, to all of you here, if you'd like to look at the screen to my left, you can see as a kind of taster, uh, these are production stills from the production that you're going to see, uh, designed and directed, of course, by Yoshi Oida. Um, we're joined now by the baritone Adam Green, who is covering the role of Pilgrim uh, Bunyan, and by Richard Pearson, who is, as we've heard, uh, a member of the music staff here at English National Opera, who's been the repetiteur uh, on this production. And they're going to perform music from the Pilgrim's Progress. Can I ask you to welcome Adam Green and Richard Kiffin. <laughs> Richard, I'm not going to allow you to sing yet because I want to talk to you for a moment or two, but um, can, we, can we start with, um, it, do you see in your, in, your, in your own mind that John Bunyan is in fact also the Pilgrim here? Certainly, uh, yes, in this production the two characters, uh, John Bunyan does become the Pilgrim, and I think in the, the broader context of the work, much of the Pilgrim's journey is a reflection on the life of John Bunyan himself, who was beset by various temptations. I was reading, uh, confessing to acts of profanity, dancing, even bell ringing, <laughs> and, uh, and though an adept uh, linguist, was a renowned swearer as well. So there we are, John Bunyan. As, as, as a singer, but also an actor, how do you, how do you characterise the Pilgrim on his journey? I, well, he has a, a sort of wide-eyed, childish innocence throughout um, as he faces the challenges on his journey. And I think the charm of the work lies in Bunyan's intense imagination, making these characters, incidents and scenes as the opera progresses come alive in the imagination of the listener. And does he develop? I mean, we, we go to the theatre, we imagine, or we hope we imagine, that the character we're going to watch, or the principal character, is going to change. That the King Lear, who foolishly divides his kingdom in Act One, is going to be, alas, the sad old man at the end. He certainly develops in his steadfast determination to reach Mount Zion, dodging the profanities of Vanity Fair and the, the monster Apollyon, and taking with him various props, if you like, uh, the, the staff of salvation, a role of the world, and a key of promise. I mean, it's similar in a way maybe to Frodo Baggins as he <laughs> journeys to the fires of Mount Doom with Sauron's ring. And, and as a singer, what are the challenges of this very long role? Yeah, um, 
the pilgrim doesn't leave the stage really, so it's a two and a half hour opera, and he he sings from the very beginning to the very end. So in that, there's, there's quite a challenge. Not much time for a glass of water. So it's a question of pacing yourself to get through the piece. Yes. I and I, so. does Vaughan Williams allow you moments in which you can, as it were, I wasn't going to say mark, but moments where you can, in fact, take, take, take. Yeah, take. very much so. I think it's very well paced um, as an opera. And, and how did you set about preparing yourself for this? What kind of things are you doing? I just learnt it. I think that was... <laughs> simply learnt it. Yeah. I, I love the way singers say that, you know. I just, I just learnt the part of Hagen, you know, yeah. as if it were so easy. Oh. Anyway, what are you going to sing for us first? Yes, um, at the beginning of the second part uh, of the opera... The morality. Of the... Morality. Of the morality, sorry. LAUGHTER uh, the pilgrim has been found guilty by the jury of Vanity Fair and sentenced to death uh, by Lord Hategood. And in this, the first part of the aria, which opens the second half, the pilgrim pleads with God asking why he has forsaken him. Promise fell for evermore. 
Adam Green and Richard Pearson, thank you both very much indeed. Richard, um, is there something distinctive, uh, as you've worked on this piece, about Vaughan Williams' vocal style for Pilgrim's Progress? Um, yes, I think there is. I mean, a, um, a lot of the vocal writing, particularly the chorus writing, comes very much from the world of Anglican church music, of course. Um, and indeed, Vaughan Williams opens the whole piece with a hymn tune. Um, but what I love so much about the way he uses the hymn tunes, he takes something with um, the hymn tune York. Which you could say is almost the epitome of four-square ordinariness. Um, but with his harmonization, he transforms it into something of the most visionary nobility. And so on. And, um, but also, back to the vocal writing, um, what's been particularly interesting, I've found, is the way that the, our chorus has responded to this piece, because I think they felt quite lukewarm about it to begin with, and a number of them. I think they sort of heard the English churchy no noise of the music. And that's so much associated with a performance style which is very restrained, reserved, unemotional even. Um, but then, as they were encouraged, particularly by Martin, to give it the full sort of passionate intensity that it needs, they've grown to love it more and more. Um, and particularly hearing it with the orchestra, because the orchestration is so rich and, and wonderful. Was there a moment when you could see them slowly realising that this wasn't quite what they thought it was and there was much more to do? There have been a few particular moments, but one was the first production rehearsal of the first scene, which is among the most beautiful of the scenes. And when they sang it through first, it, it was just sounding restrained and reserved and, and, and sort of non-committal, really. And Martin and Martin Fitzpatrick, the chorus master, said, you know, this really needs a fervent intensity. It, it's passionate music. Of course, it's radiantly beautiful, but it's passionate and active. And they, they, they sang their hearts out, and it was absolutely wonderful. And then when they first heard the orchestra as well, that was another step up, and they've, they've really grown to love it. You were nodding, Martin. Yes, yeah, so that, that was a very wonderful moment in, in the rehearsal room out in Bromley by Bow. We go to all the exotic places, you know. <laughs> and um, the nature of the piece is, as we've, we've, you've, you've obviously gleaned, it's quite a static piece. And the chorus, I think, were particularly static in this 
this first scene. Um, and Yoshi blesses Cotton Socks. Yoshi's a wonderful man, the, the director. We've had a wonderful time with him. But there are moments of frustration. I hope you... This is going to go on the website, isn't it? Perhaps I'd better be quiet now. But, um, and some, somehow, that first scene, he didn't really ignite the chorus. He didn't get them you know, where you, where you need to get... It's tricky to get 50 highly talented individuals to come together and work and bring to life this, this, kind of, this kind of relatively static, and as Richard's alluded, you know, very churchy kind of music, some of it. And this particular scene, that we, it was really... We, we were just going... You know, it just wasn't working. So we, we, Martin Fitzpatrick, who's the head of music here and has acted as chorus master on this show, and he's done a terrific job, as you'll hear. We got terribly frustrated and decided we'd just take, take over, basically. We just took over the rehearsal. And got, we really, from that moment on, the chorus really got the, got the piece. They started to really enter into the, into the mood of the piece. I mean, static doesn't, by its very, doesn't mean that it has to be dull. You know, it can be slow moving, but it can still have fervor. It's got to have, always have this passion. You know, you, you hear this, as Richard played, that relatively, not banal hymn tune, but, you know, a simple hymn tune. But if you infuse it with beauty and energy, it suddenly becomes absolutely glorious, as, as I hope you'll hear later. Richard, we, we, we've talked about... Uh, Martin Fitzpatrick, who uh, worked with the chorus, you. How many other people worked on this production from the music staff? Um, well, there was this, the assistant conductor, Gergé, um, and assistant chorus master, but I was pretty well the only one who played the piano for rehearsals. I have to say, this is I've done a few operas in my year, but Richard has played, I think he missed one rehearsal in the whole that, that I was aware of. And that kind of commitment is... Unbelievable! I've never experienced that before. Normally, with an opera, you know, the, you, you have a main repetitor and then perhaps someone who would come in and uh, take the load off his shoulders. But he's done every rehearsal and has been a terrific support. I'm just the kind of back back room boys that don't get the glory they deserve, and I'm I'm really pleased to. You know, we've had a great uh, great collaboration. It's been a wonderful yeah. experience, I it think, really for the has. whole music team and everybody involved. Yes. Richard, does that, I mean, your, your absolute commitment to this, does that reflect a very personal commitment to this piece? Is I, something that I absolutely love this piece, and I feel quite protective of it because <laughs> it's, you know, it's, um, well, because of its scant performance history, and, and um, yeah, and I'm so pleased that we're doing it, and I think doing it justice, and... Uh, no, it's been a wonderful experience. I want to turn around, as it were, Martin's uh, perspective onto your perspective. Are there moments when, when you've been working with Martin, uh, with uh, the cast, where you've had to say things that you think, uh, from your protective point of view for this score, need to be said? I mean, it, to what extent is there a kind of democracy or at least a sense of exchange of views between uh, whoever is responsible in the last word for the musical side of things and yourself as the, uh, the, the principal architect of all the rehearsals? Um... Well, I mean, it has felt very much like a collaboration. I, I mean, um, Martin's wonderful to work with and, and has made me feel able to make suggestions and observations. Um, and, it's, and it's always wonderful to have a conductor who's open to, you know, those things. So. And what for you has been the discovery in this, in the process that has led from first rehearsals to performance? 
about this work? One of the principal things is, I mean, obviously I'd listened to the recordings, but uh, Vaughan Williams's orchestration is among the, the richest and, and the most wonderful in, in all opera, actually. It's, um, I particularly enjoy playing the big romantic scores, Wagner, Janacek and Strauss, and I sort of pride myself on giving some sort of impression of the feel of the orchestra. I found it almost impossible with this piece because the orchestration is so tied up with the music. It's, you know, the music is conceived with the orchestration in mind and it's, it's so wonderfully rich. And to hear Martin bring it out with the orchestra has been wonderful. We, we can, I hope, Martin, come back to this orchestration. In the meantime, um, Richard, you and Adam are going to perform what? The second half of the aria we've just heard. That's right, yes. Uh, the pilgrim... Um, reaffirms his faith in God uh, and asks that he could be shown the, the way to Zion. Oh, fool that I am, in my bosom lies the key of promise. Wherefore should I lie in bondage? When I might walk at liberty on the king's highway, the key, the way of freedom, open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them. Ra 
say, surely the darkness will cover me. Even the night shall be light about me. The darkness is no darkness with me. And the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light to thee are both alike. But thy word is a lantern unto my feet. And a light unto my path. Lead me, Lord, make my way straight. Adam Green and Richard Pearson, thank you both very much indeed. Um, a moment ago, Richard was talking, Martin, about the, 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 the really in the sense of the colour, the orchestral mm. colour of this score. How would you characterise that? Gosh, well, it's extraordinary when you, you mentioned right at the beginning, he wrote his first Pilgrim music in 06, and this was premiered in 51. So there's a lot of, a huge, half a lifetime spent, Vaughan Williams spent thinking or writing this music. But somehow, it all, it all feels from the same pen, which of course it is, but it, you don't get a huge disparity in styles through the piece. But on the other hand, you just heard that glorious, um, wonderful filmic kind of music there. Of course, he wrote wonderful film scores, Vaughan Williams, Scott of the Antarctic, uh, amongst others. He wrote extraordinarily angry music in the Fourth Symphony particularly. He wrote beautiful pastoral stuff in the third, the pastoral and the fifth, m melodies and harmonies of which 
are used in this opera. Music from the Fifth Symphony appears in, in Pilgrim's Progress. He was an extraordinarily wide-ranging composer. He could do, do many, many things. And somehow this, this score encapsulates all the very best of Vaughan Williams. I mean, you can't just put, pinpoint a style for the whole piece because, you know, when, I don't know what's on the screen at the moment. Yes, well, you can... Vanity, that's the raunchy Vanity Fair uh, uh, sequence, which, of course, won't sound anything like that. You know, that, 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 that doesn't match what you just heard. So there's very lively and uh, evocative music in, in that scene and very sublime and ethereal music in, in various other moments. What you have to remember is he studied with Ravel, who was a master orchestrator, and you, you feel that the perfume, there's a perfumed nature to this music, which is very hard to pin down. I mean, the, and again, it, it gets me at different places every time, so I'm, I'm looking forward to my moment of tearfulness tonight. N don't know where it'll come, but the sublime beauty of the score will, will inevitably get me at, at some point. The word luminous is the word that's luminous. often used, and it, it does, it is luminous in, in the very best sense of that word, isn't it? Yes, and there's something, well, you heard it there, the, this undulating harmonic uh, stuff, but the, I mean, there are even earlier moments there. One of my favourite moments, Richard, could you find right the, somewhere in, in the, the Evangelist? Where he first goes into E major, can you? Is that, sorry, I mean, I'm putting him on the spot now. This is, but you, there are moments where, he, he turns the corner in such a beautiful way in terms of the harmony and the orchestration enhancing the, the musical uh, language that it, it's just sublime. You know that moment I mean? Yeah. I knew he'd find it. <laughs> I mean, that's just indescribably beautiful, even, even on the piano. But it's also, but it's also unmistakably Vaughan Williams, isn't it? Yeah, yes, of course. That's, I mean, what's yeah. so, that's what's so doubly extraordinary yeah. about it. He's one of those composers that you tend to recognise after two or three seconds, don't you, on Radio 3? Oh, who's that? Oh, yeah, Vaughan Williams. Prokofiev's another one. There are, there are many, they've got particular uh, fingerprints that you you understand who it is quite quickly. And yes, I mean, it's, it's just wonderful. You, you can't say it often enough. All of, all of you here this evening have made it all sound terribly easy. But let me ask Billy really a last question, and then we'll invite the audience to join us. What, for you, standing in front of the orchestra in the pit with the singers up on stage, what, for you, are the real issues, the real problems? None. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... But I don't believe this. <laughs> it's, I mean... Uh, you know, the usual, there are usual issues with, if you've got, how many people are down there? 70-odd in the pit and one voice. You can imagine what, what might be a problem. You know, balance, balancing the orchestra to the stage and so on. But, uh, you know, we describe we've got this wonderful team. So I'm, I'm down there in the, on the coalface and the, the music staff range around the house in, in rehearsals and tell me where there are balance problems and the orchestra have been extraordinarily cooperative I think and play you know they, they know what their job is they, they're not there to drown the singers they're there to help the the drama along and they they've, the balance issues have not been too huge and I mean I just you know I've been doing this conducting business now for 
since ooh, 1988, so that's quite a long time, isn't it? So I sort of know what to do now. <laughs> so really, I do enjoy it. I really, really enjoy my job. And of course, the best moments are the performances. The rehearsals have been great, but when all the talking stops, that's when it really, really gets great. So I'm looking forward to tonight enormously. Ladies and gentlemen, I thought we should end with Vaughan Williams in his own words. In a sense, Martin has hinted at what I'm going to quote. It's the remark that he's supposed to have made to Ursula Vaughan Williams after the not altogether satisfactory production at the Royal Opera House, the other place. He said, they don't like it and they won't like it and perhaps they'll never like it because it hasn't got a love story or any big duets and it's not like the operas they're used to. But it's the sort of opera I wanted to write and there it is. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, can I on your behalf say thank you to all of you and thank you to our guests, Martin Bravins, tonight's conductor, Adam Green and Richard Pearson. Thank you all.